Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. A candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hello to my caregiver nation. I hope everybody's doing great today. I am so happy because I have my niece in studio with me. And Sarah, I've wanted you on the call for such a long time. My niece, Sarah Hackert, is a speech language pathologist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. We have talked so many times over the years about our jobs, our work, and what we try to accomplish with our my clients, your patients. And I didn't even realize until recently that, first of all, you're also a certified brain injury specialist at Washington yes. University in the, in the physical therapy department, right? Correct. And we both work with elderly people, adults, at least adults, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you may, you know, be more open to all ages of your of your patients. I don't know, but we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, I see patients anywhere from usually eighteen years old up to as old as they get. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, we have uh, so often chatted about your grandma, my mom. Mm-hmm. And I wish when she started showing signs of Alzheimer's that you had been through your schooling at that point because you were really starting it when she was already pretty progressed. But I think along the lines, you being a speech-language pathologist probably could have helped with her symptoms. Yeah, I think so too. And I I often think that same thing. When she started having some of her early symptoms, I was only in high school, Mm -hmm. I feel like. Um, Mm -hmm. And by the time I really got into college and grad school, she was pretty far progressed. Um, So it would have been helpful to have some of the knowledge that I have now so that I could have helped her more. You know, coulda, shoulda, wouldas, right? We did the best Mm -hmm. we could with it. But I find it interesting, and I get a lot of questions about how speech and language therapy help when somebody is losing their words or if somebody has Parkinson's disease and and things like that. And so that's why I wanted you on the show today and to really talk about what you do And I'm going to give a quick overview, and then we're going to get right down into each one of these topics, okay? Because I think that my listeners are going to be really interested in what you have to say today. So Caregiver Nation, get your pens and your paper ready because she's going to have some great information. But So the components of your job really have a wide scope, right? So you may work with anybody that could have a stroke. Uh, traumatic brain injury, a tumor, seizures, MS, Parkinson's disease, frontal temporal, Alzheimer's, and even COVID. Explain that. Yeah. Over the past year, ever since um, 
people are starting to notice some long, what they call long haul COVID symptoms. Mm -hmm. They're having a lot of these similar symptoms that people with dementia have. So difficulty with word finding and difficulty with memory. And it can be very young people in their 20s and 30s. Um, It doesn't matter who you are, but we're noticing a lot of the same symptoms. So ironically, that's becoming a pretty large part of my caseload. I would never have thought that. Me either. This pandemic has brought a lot of different um, components, some some different issues. And I think our people with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and all these different dementias being isolated, it may have compounded some of these issues. I agree. I think that mental health and loneliness um, and the isolation that comes along with that really plays a large part in it. I do, too, because if they're not being social, if they're not active in in groups or talking to people on the phone or just getting out and going to the store, we miss so much of that over two years. Right. It's just as uh, it's surprising how many issues have come up with not only the COVID, but everybody just being so isolated. Did that make your work more difficult? Um, I think it's just, it's made it a little bit more interesting. It's kind of, um, there's been so much research in the past about stroke and brain injury rehab and dementia. And this was just something brand new Mm -hmm. that we all had to kind of do a lot of research and learning as things changed. And it's made it just really interesting um, and just a little bit different in a good way, though, to help these people. Right. And one of the things that that you told me that you really try to focus on is restorative and compensatory therapy treatments. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. So depending on the person and the cause of their difficulties, treatments may be restorative or compensatory or even a combination of both. And restorative treatments really aim to recover function or regain a skill that's been lost. So it's typically more aggressive and it's best suited for somebody who's suffered a loss of function due to a sudden onset, like a traumatic brain injury or a stroke. Okay. Um, Whereas compensatory treatments are more suited to those with dementia or anything progressive. And they typically aim to improve awareness, coping skills, use of strategies, and just preservation of current skills. And it involves a lot of environmental modifications and should definitely involve family support and caregiver training. Okay. So with that, Just to kind of take that a step further, when you mean, when you say environmental, do you mean utilizing objects in their home, um, helping them to communicate with their family members? Is it working on practicing words or uh, reading? What, What does that mean? It may be a combination of all of those things. So for an example, someone who has a memory impairment and they can't find where things are in the home, sometimes they can label their cupboards and their cabinets with what goes where. So somebody who's, you know, maybe it's their job to unload the dishwasher and put things away and they don't remember where things go. So there can be labels. Um, 
it can be as simple as just having a place for everything, you know, having like a basket where the keys always go so that they always know where to find them, things like that. It might be a to-do list in the bathroom that reminds them the sequence of what all they need to do to get ready in the morning. That's beautiful. And that's a lot of what I do. So I'm going to use some of your your ideas here when I'm working with families and trying to help them to help their families with better communication and understanding. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've implemented as well is taking pictures of what's behind the cabinet door. Yes, that's great. So if they can't read the words, maybe they can just see a picture of the actual plates or what's in there. And mm-hmm. um, do you think that helps? Yeah, absolutely. And in speech pathology, we do a lot of um, what we call alternative and augmentative communication. So there may be a communication device, like an electronic device, um, that can help someone communicate if it's um, if it's a language impairment. But at a lower tech level, it may be something like a communication book that just has some basic needs or wants in there. And we oftentimes will put a word and a picture that goes with it to help with that comprehension for someone that can't necessarily read the word. They can see the picture and recognize it to help make requests. Oh, I love that. How do you tackle this when someone, say, with Alzheimer's is having trouble learning something new? Does that ever become part of your treatment plan, trying to help them to adjust to whatever Mm -hmm. information you're giving them? Yes, I would say so. And it really, really, really heavily relies on family support. And I don't typically like to do therapy with these people one-on-one. I like to have, you know, a significant other spouse or a child or someone close to them in the treatment sessions so that I can get feedback about what they like and what their routines are like. And so that I can make sure that what I'm providing for them is going to be functional and relevant. So that helps give me a lot of my ideas too. Well, that is a definite person-centered care approach because I always feel like you can't work with someone if you don't know their history and you can't give them a list of things to do or a routine of activities if it isn't, uh, if they're not a part of making that particular routine and plugging mm-hmm. in the things they like. So I see why that's super important to involve the family. It takes, you know, it takes a team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if the patients don't, you know, I call them patients because I just work in a medical setting. So if I refer no, to that's patients, fine. that's yes. why. Um but, you know, if they don't, if they're not interested in it, then they're not going to care about it. They're not going to use it as much and it's not going to carry over. Right. So really super important to make it relevant to them. Is it is it difficult to make progress with someone with Alzheimer's? I, I want to talk about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's for mm-hmm. just a second and even vascular. Is it, different, it difficult for a person with Alzheimer's because they're losing their words? Mm-hmm. And they can't find them. A person with Parkinson's is just using their losing their audible tone. So you have mm-hmm. different ways that you might work with them. Can you explain first the Alzheimer's person if they're struggling with remembering what you just said? Sure. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of plays into the whole compensatory approach of treatment. And I'm very honest and straightforward with them from the beginning that I wouldn't anticipate huge progress. You know, they're not going to restore all this function that they've lost, but that they can maintain a sense of independence and success 
just through using compensatory strategies. So for example, if it's that they're having trouble remembering things that they're hearing, you know, then we talk about some things that can help them remember like a memory book or, you know, just making notes in a journal or on a calendar or something like that. Okay. And so I work with the person and their family member or caregiver um, to kind of help establish these things in therapy and in the home so that they can have something to rely on to help them. That is so hopeful. Do you know what I mean by that? Because Mm -hmm. families, as soon as they get a diagnosis, they start worrying, they start grieving, even if they don't know it. And so looking to a path that can actually help and provide some some degree of maintaining that person's quality of life. Mhm, absolutely. Is and huge. I do have patients that get to the point where they become so, you know, their memory hasn't come back, but they become so good with using strategies and they recognize the importance of it that they don't really need my services anymore. So oh. oftentimes I'll I'll discharge someone who has severe memory impairments just because they can compensate and they're doing that on their own or with help from their spouse, for example. Um, So it's nice to see people get to that point where they just feel comfortable going forward, kind of using those systems and they don't really need me anymore, which is great. It is great. I mean, I don't want to say, you know... It's great that they don't need you anymore, but I'm glad that they can move on on their own, taking what they've learned and applying it to their daily routine Mm -hmm. and making it work for them. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to talk about some of the other things. Oh, Parkinson's. I want to go back to Parkinson's. So when someone is losing their audible tone, I've had the big and loud folks on. Mm-hmm. But it's been several years. And so for new listeners, they may not know what that is. But when a person has Parkinson's disease, oftentimes they will start speaking in a very low audible tone where they think people can hear them. Mm-hmm. But to everyone else, it sounds like they're whispering. So how do you help our friends with Parkinson's? Yeah, so that's a that's a very important point you just made. That's a really common feature of the the voice impairment with Parkinson's mm-hmm. is that the patients themselves are not always aware of it. Um and they wonder, you know, they think, "Oh, my husband has a hearing loss. Why can't he hear anything I'm saying?" You know, right. and they don't realize that it's them. So, a lot of the therapy involves just education and improving awareness of what's going on with their voice. And that LSVT loud that we do really works to kind of recalibrate a person's perception of his or her own voice. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, LSVT big is with physical therapy, with big movements, with walking. The loud that we do in speech therapy, um, it involves, you know, really pushing out your volume. Um, What seems to a level to be too loud sometimes to them But to their family and everyone else, it's like, oh, wow, I can hear them. It sounds normal. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's it's a pretty intensive therapy four times a week um, for 16 total sessions that works on just really improving that loudness. And there's a lot of carryover and home exercises in between sessions, which really help as well. It takes a lot of work. But if you can if you can bridge that communication, the understanding becomes such a big component because Mm -hmm. the family members 
sometimes get angry, they get critical, and the person with the diagnosis feels like they're being judged, and then it becomes very uncomfortable to communicate. So to be able to bridge that gap is huge. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. I did not know that you did that. (laughs) So how fun. We share some things. Now, recently, I called you and told you that some of the docs at UCH were having a problem with a person who wasn't swallowing. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I want to get into some some real areas where you work with people on very specific components, okay? Mm-hmm. And in this yeah. case, it's dysphagia, right? Right. And so um, what is dysphagia? And let's talk about, you know, how you really looked at what the docs were telling you they were having a problem with and trying to explain to me what they meant by they had already done a swallowing study and they were wondering why the person wasn't swallowing. Okay, so what is dysphagia? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for reaching out to me about that. I absolutely loved that. I don't very often get a chance to collaborate with people that are a thousand miles away. Um, (laughs) I'm in St. Louis. So that was, that was just wonderful to be able to connect with some of those doctors and to, to feel like I was providing some valuable feedback. So thank you. Oh, sure. Um, But yeah, dysphagia is actually one of my strongest passions. um, And it always has been. Dysphagia means impaired swallowing due to a variety of factors that may be in the mouth or in the throat, including muscle weakness or incoordination Mm -hmm. or excessive saliva, to name a few. Okay. So there are really a lot of different treatment approaches depending on the type and severity of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of just, it's very patient specific and it kind of depends on a person's complaints and results of their swallow test as to what we would do to help them. Okay. And so for uh, that particular person that uh, the docs had said they had done a swallowing study, what does that mean? What is a swallowing study? Okay. So in terms of assessment, there's actually a few different methods um, to assess swallow function. The first of which would be called a clinical or a bedside swallow evaluation. Um, So that involves just an interview during which we learn about the swallowing problem and we find out specific concerns and goals. And then we'd complete an oral motor assessment to identify any decreased movement, weakness, or incoordination that they're having. And then lastly, we would observe the patient just eating and drinking various consistencies while we try to monitor for symptoms of difficulty. Now, if concerns are raised during this process, that's when we would go on to recommend an instrumental swallow evaluation. And that's kind of what you were referring to with the swallow study. Mm -hmm. So there are two different types of instrumental eval. The first one is called a modified barium swallow study. And so we refer to that as MBS. And this involves a live x-ray video of the throat while a person swallows. Mm -hmm. So it's typically done in the radiology suite of a hospital. Um, The second would be called a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing or FEES. And this involves a skinny, flexible endoscope with a camera on the end that's passed through the nose in order to view the structures inside the throat. Okay. 
And so both of those tests really accomplish the same purpose. So the decision of which one to do depends on the availability of the equipment and usually just the patient preference. But those are the things that we use to kind of get our information about what's going on in the throat. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to have you explain why people in late-stage Alzheimer's and also Parkinson's and sometimes with vascular dementia have trouble swallowing. Okay? We'll be right back. Carillon at Bellevue Station is a residential community enriching the senior living experience. Our community full of grandeur and elegance is located near Cherry Hills, Colorado. We offer independent living and personalized assisted living services and an intimate caring neighborhood for our residents with Alzheimer's and other dementias. A beautifully appointed spacious apartment, chef prepared meals, transportation services and a team devoted to your safety and wellness are what awaits you when you reside at Carillon at Bellevue Station. Call 720-440-8200 or visit carillon at bellevuestation.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. I'm so pleased to have Sarah Hackert, my niece from St. Louis, on the show today. And Sarah, it's so good to talk to you about all the issues that my clients and your patients share and get a new perspective on why they're having some of the issues and what speech language therapy can do for people with various dementias. So before we went to the break, I was asking you about why people in late-stage dementia have trouble swallowing. There could be a lot of reasons, but give me your take on it. Okay, so, you know, with dementia, it affects the brain, just like a stroke does or a traumatic brain injury. And the brain controls everything we do. It controls every part of our body. So it's easy for people to understand with something that affects the brain that it could have an effect on your legs or your arms. But it's the same thing with the muscles in your throat. Mm-hmm. Um So, you know, an insult to a certain area of the brain may result in weak muscles in the throat, or it may just result in a delay in initiating a swallow. You know, sometimes decreased initiation is an issue that we see. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So what is that? What exactly does that mean? So they may have the, the muscle memory, but it takes a minute for it to kick in? Yeah. So sometimes patients will chew food and just keep chewing and chewing and chewing and hold it in their mouth because they have difficulty initiating that swallow process to to drive the food down the throat. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes as they're chewing, the things will start to kind of fall back over the back of their tongue. Um, it's common that drinks will sometimes start to trickle down the throat before they actually initiate that swallow process. And so that presents a bit of a safety risk. You know, if there's liquids in your throat getting close to your airway and you're not necessarily ready for it. So that's something that we commonly see, too, and that we can address. Okay. And would that cause them to choke? It could. So if something falls down the wrong tube, so to speak, um, if something falls 
below their vocal cords and into their airway, that's what we call aspiration. And that's where you may notice that a person has some coughing and just that response to they feel something's wrong in there. Um, so it's not necessarily choking, but it's, you know, that they sense that something goes down the wrong way. Okay. And if that happens a lot, and if you start to get a fluid buildup in your lungs, then that can lead to serious health complications like aspiration pneumonia. Oh, so that's, that's, that's dangerous. Yeah, it really is. And that puts people in the hospital. So that's a real concern with dysphagia treatment that we try to um, avoid and try to help people to prevent. Can you explain why people pocket food? Yeah. So again, it might be because of muscle weakness. You know, maybe they don't have full sensation in their mouth or they might not have full range of motion. Um, and so they might be pocketing food in their cheeks and they're just not even really aware of it. Or maybe their tongue's not moving well enough to just, you know, sweep over and swipe it out like we would normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes they might pocket food in their mouth and they might need somebody to give them a cue and let them know that something's in there and they might need even help clearing it. A good example of that is your grandma, my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, We used to say, you know, mama, swallow, swallow, swallow. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I would just put my hand on her throat and kind of gently rub downward to see if I could get her Adam's apple to move so she would swallow the food. Yeah. Is that a good thing to do or not? Absolutely. So we consider that a tactile cue, um, those touch cues. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people really benefit from that. If it's an initiation thing or if it's a sensation thing, they may benefit from feeling that light touch on their cheek so that they know there's food in there or down, you know, near the Adam's apple in the throat. And it might kind of help stimulate that swallow response. Okay. Well, that's good to know because a lot of my caregiver nation worry about their folks who are mm-hmm. no longer eating or they're pocketing the food, they're they're choking on food. And, and those are the yeah. kind of things that, that you can help with. Yeah. Now, I would say one of the very most important things that some people just don't know, and I just want to make this known okay. to all of your caregiver nation, mm-hmm. um, is that one of the best things they can do to maximize safety with a person that's experiencing trouble with swallowing is to really focus on the posture. A person should be sitting upright when they're eating or drinking. And a lot of times, you know, people are laying in bed or in a recliner and they're leaned back and they're being fed. Ooh. And that significantly increases the risk of something going down the wrong tube. That so is great information. <laughs> when at all possible, it's good to be kind of sitting as upright as possible. Okay. Oh my gosh, I love that. Everybody write that down. This is a big <laughs> this is a big thing because you don't think about that. I was in a home recently where the client constantly lays on the couch. She eats laying yeah. down everything. So I'm gonna make sure to tell her daughter to listen to this podcast. Okay. Very nice. Let's move on to something that is one of the biggest issues, aphasia. It's one of the words Mm -hmm. that we hear a lot. Uh, People don't understand what it means, but it is that loss of word. It's the loss of the ability to speak. Mm -hmm. Expand on that. Yeah. So it, it can definitely affect a person's ability to speak, but also comprehend Mm -hmm. and also read and write. 
So it can affect all different forms of communication. If you think about all the different ways you communicate, aphasia can have a negative impact on all of those. Okay. And so SLPs, speech language pathologists, can provide a lot of different evidence-based treatment programs for aphasia. Okay. And, um, and these are things that, you know, we can provide home exercises and give ideas that caregivers and family members can implement at home as well. Um, and these are things that have been highly researched and are, you know, have been shown to really affect good change, which is great. And then we also teach a lot of compensatory strategies. So again, with the, you know, we talked about memory earlier and writing things down. Mm-hmm. So there's also really good strategies that you can use to kind of help pull those words to mind when you're struggling and when you're stuck on a word. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we always educate people on before starting any treatment. And then even during the treatment, we always provide ongoing education and training about these strategies. So when you say evidence-based treatments, you mean that they have actually studied these treatments and put a lot of thought into not only the strategy of the treatments, but the techniques of the treatments and tried it on different patients. So you know that a certain degree, uh, an amount of the treatments that you're bringing forward have really been researched and thoughtfully put together. Yes, correct. And that's what I love about my job. Um, (laughs) It's it's just amazing, you know, because you can tell people I'm giving you this for a reason. And here's the evidence that shows that this can help. And I think that, you know, people really respond well to that. And um, I've seen a lot of good success using these programs with people. And there's evidence based programs for the reading and the writing and the speaking and the listening comprehension for all of it. And when the the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe are affected, mm-hmm. they're losing the ability to recognize an object and say what that object is. Can you mm-hmm. give me maybe an example of one of those evidence-based treatments when you're trying to help somebody who's suffering with the short-term memory and and recognizing objects and saying what they are, putting those pieces together? How do you help them? Yeah, sure. So one thing, you know, it's just really frustrating for the person who's struggling because Mm -hmm. oftentimes they recognize, you know, there might be something right in front of them and they recognize what it is and they know what it is. They just can't think of the word. Mm -hmm. You know, we call it kind of the tip of the tongue syndrome. So an example of one of those evidence-based protocols would be what we call SFA, which is semantic feature analysis. So if you've got, you know, say it's your glasses, You need your glasses, but you can't think of what to call them. Um, The semantic feature analysis involves coming up with different descriptions of the item and sort of talking around it. So you could say, well, it's something I wear on my eyes. It helps me see. I keep them in my bedroom or, you know, wherever you may keep them. Um, But you, you provide different features that describe the item. And it's proven that that helps the brain. The more you say about it, the more likely your brain is to think of that word. Wow. So we, we train that a lot as a kind of a work, a workaround, a way for them to cue themselves. Do you think you get, and you may not be able to answer this without really 
you know, having some graphs and a lot of information on it. Uh, but do you get more traumatic brain injuries? Do you get more people with strokes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's? Well, that's good, a good mix that, of everything. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's a good mix. That's a really interesting question because I've been doing this for 10 years, almost 11 years now. And it seems that actually, no, almost 12 years. My goodness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) But I'd say it seems that earlier in my career, the vast majority of my caseload was stroke and brain injury. It's like the majority of everything I had. But in recent years, I've really seen a significant increase in speech therapy referrals for dementia. And so that's becoming a larger part. And then also, like we talked about earlier, the post-COVID patients who are struggling with some of these cognitive symptoms. But I was reading, as part of my job, I do constant research and we have to do um, a certain amount of continuing education every year. And I read that um, the prevalence of Alzheimer's alone is expected to triple in the next 30 years. Um, So I anticipate that SLPs going forward will be getting a lot more of that. I think that I get a lot more patients, too. I get a lot more clients uh, from the patients at University of Colorado Hospital. And I really don't think it's that more people are being diagnosed with it. I think it's that we have a better awareness of these different dementias, the dementia mm-hmm. diseases and different um, different impacts on the brain, whatever they are. And we're just more knowledgeable and have siloed these things out, you know, from FTD to Parkinson's, where we don't just have it as one great big bag and somebody comes in and just isn't able to to say their words. Now you know why they're there and we're able to look at it from a a stronger perspective and a more laser focus on that particular disease. Do you think that's a fair mm-hmm. statement? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely some truth to that. So and I, I think that's across the board, not just with dementias, but with any any kind of medical diagnosis. I think, you know, we're better at diagnosing specific things now than we were 50 years ago. Absolutely. I'll bet your clinic is busy, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Does it take a, does it take a referral? How does somebody how does somebody get assigned to a speech language? Pathologist. Yeah, great question. It does take a referral from a physician. So that referral can come from a neurologist or a primary care physician, whoever is willing to write an order for your speech therapy. Mm-hmm. They typically write an order to evaluate and treat. And so then that kind of initiates the scheduling process. And how it works is that they would come in for an evaluation. Um, it varies based on the setting and the location. But in my clinic, we do hour long evaluations and that involves like interview and some testing. Um, and then we go from there to develop a treatment plan and, you know, we go forward and we do the treatment as needed, but it does take a doctor's referral. Okay. I thought it might. And even if you have want to see a neurologist, oftentimes you have to have a GP, a general practitioner send mm-hmm. over a referral. So it would seem that that would follow the same path. Well, let's yes. move on to the next thing, apraxia. Okay. What in the world is apraxia? <laughs> <laughs> so um, apraxia is a motor speech impairment. 
So just as motor skills are important for using your arms and legs, they're also very important for moving your mouth. Um, there's actually two different types of motor speech impairments that we work with. Apraxia is one of them and dysarthria is the other. So I can kind of explain both of those if you'd like and okay. compare and contrast a little bit. Right. Um, so apraxia is an impairment with motor planning skills. So it's not the same as an aphasia. It's not really a language impairment because in this disorder, a person knows exactly what they want to say and they know what the word is, but they can't make the structures of their mouth move in the correct way to produce the sounds. Okay. And so there, there might be a lot of groping and different movements where they're trying to get their, you know, their lips to close or whatever, and they just can't do it. So with severe apraxia, a person can even be completely nonverbal. Interesting. Um, and then, yeah. Before, and then you, before, art, yeah, oh, before you move on, I want to ask you, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And mm -hmm. frontal temporal. Yeah. Is this where you see a lot of this? With the apraxia? Yes. Not so much, really. Okay. Um, with, with ALS and the dementias, it's usually more of an impairment with language and cognition and voice. Okay. I would say that, you know, typically the motor speech impairments like apraxia are more so caused by a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. I have a lot of uh, different people that listen to this for different reasons, and I get a lot of those questions. I have a couple of people in my support group that have traumatic brain injuries. So this mm -hmm. is important for them. Okay, good. And they know now they have some place to go. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. So explain the other one. Okay. Yeah. So um, dysarthria is also a motor speech impairment and it results in slurred speech. So, you know, everybody's probably heard somebody, you know, after a stroke whose speech is really slow and slurred. Um, this occurs when a person has weakness in the lips and or their tongue and they have difficulty articulating their sounds clearly. Okay. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. How do you get them back to where they were? Well, um, can you, know, you? Disarth you can, absolutely. You can. I've, I've had people make incredible progress and it's great to see. Um, the treatment involves use of self-monitoring and some pacing strategies and even articulation drills to improve their speech rate and their clarity. Um, if speech is distorted due to a rate that's too fast, then we work on slowing it down and using pacing strategies. Okay. Or if it sounds unnatural due to a rate that's too slow, then we work on speeding it up. But we want to try to do that without sacrificing the clarity. Um, so we have a, a set of coordination drills that we can train um, that involve rapid production of various sound combinations. And you know, we kind of just move through a hierarchy. So once this is mastered, we go to something more complex. So like tongue twisters or something like that. Um, and at, of course, at the most functional level, level, a lot of dysarthria treatments built around conversation and just implementing strategies to maintain your speech clarity while you have conversation. So even though you work with a lot of people that have had, you know, TBIs and strokes, could mm -hmm. this help people with Alzheimer's too? Yeah, I think so too. Now, I'm not saying that people with Alzheimer's can't have dysarthria, 
but I think it's just a little bit less common. I understand. Um, yeah. I'm thinking right now, in my caseload, the patients that I have with any kind of dementia, um, I mean, they're not typically working on motor speech and dysarthria. They're typically working on language and cognition. But definitely anybody who has this problem, regardless of the cause, could benefit from the same types of treatment approach. When people have a TBI, does it just affect a certain part of the brain and then a certain area of cognition? Well, that really depends on the injury. Um, So you may have like a mild injury that just affects one part of the brain. And, you know, different parts of the brain control different things. So you may have an injury in the language area of your brain. So then you've got some aphasia or you may have an injury in the frontal lobe of your brain. And then you've got, you know, some issues with executive functioning, planning and things like that. Um, But in a case of a more severe brain injury, um, the damage may be more diffuse and it may cause multiple issues. So it really just depends on each, you know, specific case. Okay. That makes sense. And strokes Mm -hmm. are kind of the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. just where it ha- happened to take place and and did it disperse in a certain area. We're going to take right. a short break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about how you work with voice disorders and cognition. We'll be right okay. back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, we're back. And again, I have my niece, Sarah Hackert, from St. Louis, who is a speech-language pathologist, and she also is a certified brain injury specialist at Washington University in St. Louis. And Sarah, I'm so glad to have you on the show today because we're, we're hitting on things that I don't think my caregiver nation has always heard, like the last thing we were just talking about, the dysarthria. I have never brought that up in the mm-hmm. five years of this show. <laughs> so, and we've never gotten this clear and comprehensive answers about these various things we're talking about. Aphasia, dysphagia, apraxia, all these kinds of things. This is wonderful. Oh, I know good. I'm going to get lots of letters on this because people really want to know. So when we went to break, we were talking about 
you know, just forming words and how dysarthria can can really cause problems with that. But let's move on to the voice itself. Not mm-hmm. even, you know, our Parkinson's folks. We already talked about that. But but people who are just struggling with, you know, chronic hoarseness, um, mm. singers who get vocal tremors or, you know, people having spasms or what kind of things can happen to the voice? Yeah, that's a great question. So we treat a lot of different voice disorders, including hoarseness and those spasms and vocal tremor and um, spasmodic dysphonia. We have paradoxical vocal fold movement, all kinds of things that we get referrals for. So I'll start by saying if, if you have a loved one that's experiencing a change in voice, no matter what it is, you should probably seek services of an SLP because most likely they can help you with whatever it is. Um, so we really do. We get a lot of people that are struggling with hoarseness and just like a harshness in their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, again, evidence-based exercises and treatments that we can do to help with that. I can't begin to possibly go into all the details of them um, Mm -hmm. in our short hour here. But, you know, just as a quick overview, uh, we can do things like semi-occluded vocal tract exercises. That's something that your speech pathologist could teach you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can really, really help with improving the quality of your voice. There's also different ways to kind of relax tension in your throat. Um, through massage or things like that, that can also help to improve quality. Okay. Why would people have spasms? And what is, you said spasmodic dysphonia? What the heck is that? (laughs) That's a big word. (laughs) Yeah. Only an SLP (laughs) would come and say that. So there's a lot of voice conditions where the vocal cords kind of close involuntarily and it might you know, have a negative effect on voice or even breathing. Um, So it's kind of getting into all of those areas. But, you know, the treatment for that would involve ways to compensate for it and ways to relax those muscles in your throat um, and to overcome those moments when there might be a spasm or involuntary closing. Sometimes you know that I like to sing. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like I'm struggling with my vocal cords. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What would you say to me? Well, I could I'm, I'm scared to ask that you. question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that singers experience it a lot. You know, sometimes, you know, like Steven Tyler, he's he's got vocal polyps and all kinds of things on his vocal cords. Um, wow. But, you know, people who sing, especially for a living, Um, There can be, you know, some almost like some mild damage done to the vocal cords just because of the constant use. Mm -hmm. So there are some exercises, like I said, that I I can even happily send you um, that could help relax some of that. Um, I think one of the biggest and most important things and the easiest thing to implement is just some simple vocal hygiene, just making sure that a person is drinking plenty of water. Mm-hmm. and limiting caffeine because caffeine dries out the, the mucosa and the vocal cords. Um, so, you know, somebody who drinks 10 cups of coffee in the morning, that's not going to be great for their voice. <laughs> um, and, you know, making sure that you're 
your environment is not too dry, you know, limiting exposure to smoke, things like that could be some simple little things in a person's daily routine that could help improve the voice quality. Well, I think because um, I drink more water, I went on a diet last year and Mm -hmm. I had to drink half my body weight in water and then uh, stopping sugar. I don't mm-hmm. eat sugar anymore, and I don't drink. I don't, I was never really a soda drinker unless I mixed it with whiskey. <laughs> but um, I uh, and I don't smoke, so I have found that I think my voice is a little bit better. But I yeah. struggle when we're trying to get ready for our summer party because uh, after singing twelve, fifteen songs, I start losing my voice. Yeah, it just yeah, gets so tired. That's a I guess. Real... That's a real thing, vocal fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people that if you have an opportunity to rest your voice, if you're not going to be with people, if you've got an hour or so that you can sort of just be by yourself before a big event, just to rest your voice, drink plenty of fluids and don't do much talking, that can do wonders. Great. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and remember that this August. That's a good okay. good tip. <laughs> yeah. Why why do you have paradoxal what do you say paradoxal vocal fold movement? Yes, you got it. Paradoxical vocal fold movement. Mm-hmm. I actually have a patient right now on my caseload um who's experiencing this as a result of having covid actually. Um so with those people a lot of times it's that it's those spasms where the vocal cords can kind of close when you don't want them to, mm-hmm. and you can have trouble breathing. And, you know, in severe cases, you can even pass out. Wow. Um, so it can be really, really scary. Um, and so there are some different tools that they can use to get themselves out of those episodes when mm-hmm. they occur um, to kind of get their breath and help relax themselves. But I, I emphasize all the vocal hygiene things to these people as well, and it really helps. Tell me, does honey and lemon help? I think that it can. I mean, that's not necessarily, you know, one of those evidence-based speech pathology um, treatments, but, you know, that's one of those home remedies that I think there's something to it. You know, when you're sick, you drink honey and tea, and I think it helps soothe the throat. Right. Well, I'm going to utilize your services, darling, because um, I need to keep my voice strong and healthy. And I want to make sure I don't end up with those Steven Tyler polyps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He screamed a lot back in the day. Not me, but I did play in bands for 25 years and still sing a lot with you know, mm-hmm. Uncle Jim and everything. So yeah. I want to make sure I take care of my voice because I don't want it to flail on me and go away. Yeah, So great absolutely. information. Now let's move to cognition, overall mm-hmm. cognition. So the the brain itself has such a big function. And my listeners are well-informed, so they understand this, right? That the reason why uh, we have issues with movement and things like that is because 
your motor skills are in your brain. And the lobes of the brain help you with recognizing objects and being able to speak and the executive function like you were talking about in the frontal lobe and the sequencing, Uh you know, A to Z and trying to read a recipe and follow a recipe and all those kinds of things. Um, It's a big deal when your cognition is not working well, when you are showing impairment, it scares people. And we can have so many issues along these lines. Uh, as an example, uh, one of the problems is persistent talking, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Uh, the problem solving, the the attention span that, you know, that, that frontal lobe is a big deal. When it comes to, you know, those particular things, how in the world do you address all of these? Do you have to break it down? How do you figure out where where they're having problems with the cognition? It probably has to be more than just the MMSE, the mini mental status exam. uh, Do you you use a neurobehavioral exam and take information from that? How do you get to their issues with cognition? Yes, that's a really good question. So um, when we are first evaluating somebody and we are figuring out what they need and where the impairments are, um, it's kind of a combination of interview and, you know, patient report. Um, We try to ask questions about functionally what's going on with them. And they may say, oh, my short-term memory is horrible. I can't remember anything. But then I may say, well, give me an example. What are some things that you have trouble with or what are some things that you typically forget? You know, what is interfering with your daily routine? Mm -hmm. So it's good to get those types of like functional pieces of information from the person or their family. And then we also pair that with an assessment. So the one that we use most commonly in my clinic is called the R-bands. Um, And it's the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status. Mm -hmm. And so this test is a standardized test that looks at memory skills, attention, visual spatial skills, and language and the word finding. So that gives us some really good information, too, that's normed based on age. And so we kind of combine those results with what the patient has reported and we go from there. So do you do you see more angst with this with young people or older people? Um, I think, you know, in terms of angst, I think with younger people, you know, people who are in their 20s or 30s who have suffered a brain injury, you know, and they're having some similar symptoms as somebody who has dementia, that can be really scary. Right. Um, and so you know, it's, it's oftentimes very, very disturbing and emotional and, and things like that. And I have conversations with them about what's going on. And I think, you know, counseling some of these emotions is also kind of a part of my job Mm -hmm. as a speech therapist. We do kind of, to some level, we can do some counseling as it relates to cognitive deficits and language. Um, but, yeah, it can be a really, really hard time. The reason I asked you that is a few months ago, I had somebody on who has truly younger onset Alzheimer's, and he's 28 mm-hmm. years old. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
you know, when we get situations like that, that's that's extreme, but yeah. it happens. It's not particularly uncommon. I've had a few people on the show that have been very young. And mm-hmm. uh, and we see these, you know, just devastating diagnosis this young. But when you see – let's break these down just a little bit. When you mm-hmm. see somebody having an attention problem, mm-hmm. from a cognitive standpoint, how do you help keep them focused? What's What's some treatment you would use? Well, it all starts with – training strategies. And I know I sound kind of like a broken record, well, but that's what I that's what I do on this show all the time, so you're in good company. <laughs> so, really with any with any disorder or any type of impairments that you're going to try to work to improve, um, you have to have a basis of different strategies that you can use to help yourself. Mm-hmm. So with somebody who's struggling with attention, and it's especially helpful when they're aware of the problem, they know that it's a problem and they're motivated to improve it. We will kind of educate them on different strategies like limiting the distractions around them. So if they can turn off the TV or the radio, if they can close the door and have a quiet space or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to encourage focusing on one thing at a time instead of trying to multitask. Okay. Um, we encourage things like self-talk, you know, talk yourself through what you're doing to help maintain your focus and keep yourself on track. Um, to-do lists, you know, being able to follow a list and be able to check things off so that you don't get lost in what you're doing, mm-hmm. things like that. And a really important piece too, is that people need to know that it's okay to take breaks if they need it. You have to monitor your own emotional reactions. And if you're getting fatigued or overwhelmed, it's best to take a little break. Right, right. All good ideas. I love that. Let's move to a different one. Problem solving. So somebody's had a traumatic brain injury or they've had um, a concussion or something like that. And they're struggling with problem solving. Mm-hmm. You probably really have to break that one down, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that problem solving is best addressed when it's really functional. So I I take for that person, you know, what are the areas they're struggling in? So maybe it's a college student and they're struggling with, you know, their math class or whatever it may be. Um, and we try to do something that's specifically relevant to that. Or maybe it's, you know, someone who's managing a household and has a bunch of kids and trying to maintain um, the laundry and the bills and getting overwhelmed with it all. So I think, you know, the main thing to do is break it down. First, identify what's the goal that you want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to stop and actually make a plan and even write out the plan. Have it to be really clear for you and consider, you know, what materials you may need, what steps it's going to take, things like that. And, you know, and then you try to, as you implement the task, use the strategies as you go. And then it's always helpful to kind of review your performance after you've completed a big activity or a task. How did I do? What went well? What could have been better? You know what I really love about what you do is that you're giving people direction. You're giving them hope and letting them see that they have a certain amount of impact from their own contribution 
to what they're trying to accomplish. You, you can't do it all. You need right. them to work with you. But if they do work with you and they're willing to put in the work, that you can get them to hopefully some progressive um, links and get them mm-hmm. to whatever finish line. So I'm sure setting goals is important, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that you're trying to achieve them. But how beautiful is that with your work to be able to help people think that they can actually set a goal and achieve it, especially when they're dealing with really devastating and sometimes damaging situations? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very rewarding field. I absolutely love what I do. And it's it's all worth those hard days when these people make the progress and they meet their goals. And, you know, the people that come, because I work in outpatient rehab and, you know, these people are motivated. They want to be there and they know that this is helping them. And it's just so nice to be able to see the progress that can be made. And, you know, even if it's a case of something progressive and if it's the dementia it's even really rewarding to just see the level of family support and to see them learn compensations and be able to set up a routine that works at home. Well, you know what's so great for me, my dear, is that all this time, I did not know you worked with my people. I thought Mm -hmm. you worked with kids. I don't know where I got that. But once I realized it, I said to you, I've got to get you on the show. My my listeners will want to hear this. And I had no idea. I'm so happy that speech-language pathology could make such a huge difference. Yeah. This is huge. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm loving this. It's wonderful. I mean, it really makes a difference. It's it's enlightening. It's impactful. It is hopeful. You know, your thoughts, huge. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I just really didn't know. So from now on, when I get any questions from the docs and and they say, hey, does anybody know anything about speech pathology? I'm going to send them straight to you. <laughs> Do it. One I of our, love it. One of our docs, Dr. Vaughn, said, oh, I wish you were in Denver. I would have you on my team in a heartbeat. Well, uh, to all you listeners, I lovingly call her Sarah Bell. She's been Sarah Bell her entire life, and I can't can't stop myself. I love you, Sarah Bell. And thank you for all this information today. This has been fabulous. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Angel. Well, can I have you back on the show sometime? And Sure. Maybe we'll break down some specific instances that, uh, you know, some of my clients have had and see if we can get some extra help from you. Sure. Maybe we could even do a panel discussion with all my colleagues. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be fabulous. (laughs) Let's look forward to it. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. 
Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.